Welcome to Redemption's Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption's Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. Hello, Redemption's Hill. This is not exactly the way that I thought I would be coming back before you guys. After a pretty long break off of preaching, after our son Asher was born, this is actually the longest break that I've had. Um, since planting the church. So I've been really eager to get back with you, uh, to be able to preach and proclaim the word uh, to you. Uh, But yesterday, uh, Saturday, I popped positive for COVID. Uh, So uh, we're switching things around. This is not the best case scenario, but this is the best that we could do to keep the body together and still proclaim uh, the word to you. Uh, I love you guys. I can't wait to see you Again, I fully know that uh, hearing a message uh, that I'm giving in my office at a different time is is a little awkward for you. So I would just say this. uh, I believe that this word is a good word from a wonderful text from a wonderful book. Uh, So so no matter if things are a little different or feel a little awkward, I mean, I would just uh, say, uh, would you listen to the words and ask the Spirit uh, to work? And I'll even pray Uh, with that in mind before we start. Father, I pray that as uh, this word is given, that distractions or any of the other stuff that is around would just just go away. Uh, And Holy Spirit, that you would speak. You would speak to your body and your people and do your work. We ask that not only today, but throughout this uh, series, uh, there be continued work from you. Holy Spirit, draw near to us. We pray that in your name. Amen. So, Uh, Let's jump into uh, the book of Romans together. Uh, The book of Romans. Now, in AD 386, there was a man devoted to immorality. He was on a path of destruction, just a wild guy on a pretty wild path who found himself pacing in a garden. And in that garden that he randomly found himself pacing uh, around, there was a copy of the entire Bible uh, chained to a lectern there. Uh, And the man, while he's walking, sees the Bible and he hears these children sing this childhood song. And the refrain that he hears them singing is this, tole lege, tole lege, which means take up and read, take up and read. So the man uh, just says, okay, well, well, sure. And he he tries it. What else do I have to, to lose? He takes up the scriptures and he opens them, not knowing where he's opening to or what's going to happen. And as he just randomly opens the word, it lands on Romans 13. And he reads these words. You know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. As he read these words, they pierced his skin and they pierced deeply into him to the depth of his core so far in that they hit his soul. And by the power of God, through reading these words in the, the book of Romans, the man was converted that day. He, he was a new creation, a follower of Jesus. He was saved through those words. Uh, that man was later known as St. Augustine. Then if you skip forward to 1515, 
a monk studying the work of Augustine, the guy that we just talked about. Um, he is reading uh, St. Augustine's work on the book of Romans, specifically about the righteousness of God in Romans 1. And he reads this, that Augustine wrote, when Paul speaks of the righteousness of God in Romans 1, he's not talking about the righteousness by which God is righteous himself, but he's talking about the righteousness that God freely gives to those who put their trust in Jesus. The man reading um, had struggled really all of his life with a wounded conscience, always feeling terrible, never feeling good enough, weighed down by a relentless sense of guilt and shame. When he read the law, all he could see was his shortcomings and no mercy or anything else like that. But when he read these words about the righteousness of God, for the first time he understood the gospel of Christ. That Jesus came to credit a righteousness to us through faith to give us what theologians call an alien or foreign righteousness that is not our own. It comes from the outside and then it lands on us so that we may no longer feel torn down and like failures and under the weight of our shame. This man who found freedom in Christ as he read the works of Augustine about Romans, his name was Martin Luther. So I share both of these stories as we kind of walk into the intro of the book, because in them we find the miracle of salvation and the gift of freedom that come through the book of Romans in just kind of ordinary circumstances. In the middle of regular life routines, the gospel of God broke in and through the book of Romans. And the powerful stories about Romans, we could really go on and on and on over. Even reading, studying for this series, many revivals had Romans not too far away. The work that, that Romans done it, it does is quite extensive. But here's what I want you to consider. Uh, Romans could change you this year too. Not, not just Augustine or, or, or Luther. It could change you and God willing, it could change our entire church throughout the course of this year as we go through it. I worry for us that we get uh, so used to doing life the way we are that we just stop expecting. Stop expecting God to work. Stop expecting him to intervene. Stop expecting for him to break into our hearts for good. Stop expecting him to, to move us, to change us, deploy us into the world. So if you're desirous for God to move, uh, to, to have him meet you this year, if you'd say, man, I want that. Or, or maybe you'd say, well, I haven't been desirous of that, but I would be open to it. And I'd say, take, take a second in your mind right now, before, before we go into the rest, and, and just say, God, please draw near and do something. God, would you, through Romans, do something that I never imagined in my heart and in your church? God, I want this type of amazing thing that you have the history of doing through that book. I want it to happen in here, in me, and in this entire church. Would you just pray that out? And that's not figuratively. Like, actually do it in your mind. God, do that. I want that. Or if you want to kind of do what believers have historically done for a really long time, I'm not there to hear if you do it, but you can just say, amen. We're 10 years into this thing, and I have still not given up on giving amens or getting amens as I preach. Maybe 2022 will, will, will be the year of that. So I'll, I'll tell you that the book of Romans could do a beautiful work in us. But I also want to be really honest. The book of Romans will confront you as well. 
Romans will confront you at some point in this series, whether it confronts your worldview, how you see the world and everything around you, or whether it, conf whether it confronts your, your sin or your view of right and wrong, or your desire to look more like Jesus, or, or how you live peaceably or kindly to the people who, who you don't agree with or don't like politically or anything else like that. At some point, Romans is going to slam into you and your heart and the way you want things to be. But as it does, church, I just want to tell you this. It's going to be, or as it does so, it's going to do so for your good. As Romans slams into you, it's going to open space to lavish the love of God on you more. I pray that you hear that and you accept that. And when you just kind of hear something in Romans, you're like, I don't like that. That you don't lock down and run away, but that the word would move in you and change you and and help you, that we would learn to submit even in things that are hard, even in things that, that maybe on, on the front end we, we, don't, we don't love to hear. Now, we don't have a bunch of time uh, to do a long, in-depth intro to the book of Romans, but there are a couple key things that I want us to know before digging into this book. Romans is written by the Apostle Paul. He wrote most of the New Testament, and it's written by him somewhere around 57 AD, so 57 years after the death of Christ. And he wrote it as he's finishing up his third missionary journey in Corinth. But here's what we need to know and what we really need to understand. He's not been to Rome yet, even though he's writing Romans to Rome. Now, this is important because most of Paul's letters or his works are to churches that he had either visited or hung out with or, or maybe even planted himself and had to move on, meaning the people that he writes to most of the time would have already known Paul really well. He would know them and they would know him. But this isn't the case in Rome. He didn't plant this network of churches that were there. He didn't know them. So he is writing into them kind of as a stranger as a foreigner, as a person who does not know them, with no credit built up for himself. Now, you can imagine Rome is kind of like this Vegas of old, where people go and they party and they let it all hang out and no passion is restrained and power and money are viewed as God. The appetite of the flesh is exalted there, even praise, do whatever you want, do what feels good, go for it, right? Like just, just go for whatever passion that you have. And yet even there in this place, God was moving. Let that encourage you as you look around the world. But the two points that I want you to remember from that way too fast introduction are just this. Paul is a stranger to the church of Rome. He doesn't know them as he's writing into them. And Rome is an indulgence culture. We'll deal with Paul not knowing them as he writes in the text today. The indulgence culture will hold on for a lot of the messages that are moving forward, uh, especially in some that are going to come in the rest of the end of the first chapter and into the second chapter. So the text that we'll open with today is Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, 
who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> On my Instagram account, under the little profile, Diddy, where you write about yourself, it says that I am a Christ follower, a husband, a father, a friend, a church planter, mountain biker, crossfitter, and DIYer. Right? That's how I describe myself. That's my introduction to the world that may not know me. And really, honestly, those are the traits that I want to be like, hey, look at these. Right? That, 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 that's what I want to, to put forward first about myself. I don't know if you have a, a LinkedIn page or even if that's still a thing. I've never had one of those, uh, but, but I hear some people do. Or, or maybe you're creating a resume and you have to use words to describe yourself. Or maybe you're asked to share about yourself uh, to a room of people that you just don't know, to a, a room of strangers. In any of those scenarios, I wonder what words would you choose? What type of things would you try to, to describe yourself as in that moment? What is the first impression that you would want people who do not know you to, to take away uh, about you? See, we generally try and put forward creative and strong and, and, and unique aspects about ourselves in that type of scenario. We want traits that are to be admired, uh, desirable things, good overall stuff. It, it wouldn't be normal. If I started describing myself uh, to new people that do not know me is, hey, my name is TJ, uh, yell laugher with a sometimes broken filter, a really large forehead and a, and a bundle of insecurities. Hi, that, that's how I'd like you to know me, right? Because we want our first impression to be a good one. We, we don't normally put like things that are difficult or, or not great about ourselves out there first. Now, why am I bringing this up? Well, like I said, before Paul hasn't been to Rome. He's not been there yet. He's writing to a group of people who he does not know personally. He is a stranger. So you may think that he would start off some sort of introduction that gains him credibility with them. Like he'd say, hey, I'm Paul, a master theologian, right? Have an MDiv or something like that. Uh, a, a church planter 20 times over. I'm an overseer of, of literally thousands of people, educated by the best and the brightest, uh, from the perfect Jewish heritage even. But that's not the first and the most significant thing that he wants to say. Hear me, that's not the core identity that Paul wants to convey to those people about himself. Instead, he opens up with, Hi, I'm Paul. A slave. That's his intro. Now, <clears throat> in most English Bible translation, the words that you'll see in your Bible are actually going to be servant. But that's not really a good translation of the original language at all. The original language uses the word uh, doulos, doulos. 
which is just clearly slave. It's used as slave in every other place that is used. And, and I understand that most translations avoided uh, the word slave in their renderings for a reason. They, they avoided it because... Uh, most of us, when we hear the word slave, we think of the race-based slavery that came early in the history of the United States. We think of horrific brutality and segregation and lynching and things like that. So avoiding that word seemed prudent to the translators uh, because they did not want to lose the readers, even Though the word slave back in that time wouldn't have meant the same thing uh, as a race-based slavery, they still wanted to avoid it to try not to lose people. <clears throat> but here's the problem with that. Servant and slave just don't mean the same thing, right? If we go with servant here for the core identity that Paul wants us to see first, remember the very first thing that he wants to say about himself, then we strip this opening from carrying the weight and the meaning that it needs to, and possibly we miss the, the trajectory that we need to move forward in this book with. So how are they different though? Like what's the big deal? What's a big deal with, with interchanging servant or, or slave or, or, or changing them? Why is it a big deal that we have the right word in view here? <clears throat> Well, slave is literally owned by another, and a servant just labors for another. A servant can leave their boss's house. They can clock out. They can go live their own life. They can do their own thing on their own time. They can kind of do what they, what they want. Servants must be under their boss's rule during the hours of the day that they're working for them. But then they can just kind of go and, and be under their own rule and do their own thing and be their own at other times. This means a, a slave is, is not their own. They, they never, like a servant, get to go be rogue or go solo or, or go do what they want, while a servant is still able to keep their life and actions and once separate, the, the slave can't do that. See, a servant gets to fragment their life in between these categories of labor and leisure, right? I, I labor for the person then, but then I leisure and do what I want the rest of the time, while a slave is 100% of the time in line with their, with their owner in his desires for them. Lastly, beyond owned versus labor versus your own and not your own, we need to understand a slave's value is fixed. It's set. It's determined. It's unchangeable. Why? Because there was a price paid for the slave, and that price that was paid sets the value of the slave. While servants' value, follow me for a second, is based upon the equal or the quality of their work at the time that they're doing it. Right? It fluctuates. It isn't fixed. It can move. It can't be counted on or rested in ever. Meaning, if a servant begins to just not do such a great job, if their work begins to, to fall short or, or falter, then in that moment where they're not living up to what they did at one point, their value falls and, and, it, and it plummets. Maybe you hear this and think, okay, well, I get the points. Uh, labored versus owned, your own, not. Fixed value versus not. Like I, I hear all the points, but I still really hate that idea. Maybe you hear this and are offended by the identity of slave being given to Christians. You'd rather hold on to the core identity uh, of something like saint or son or daughter or child of God, forgiven, clean, adopted, pardoned, cherished, or even beloved. 
but you just don't like the idea of accepting the identity of slave personally. Here's what we have to realize next. Everyone is a slave. Hear that and let that sit in. Everyone is a slave. A slave to sin or a slave to Christ Jesus. But everyone is. See, there's no exceptions. Therefore, the idea of being a slave isn't what we should be wrestling with. What we need to wrestle with is what are we a slave of and to? What's the, the, that's the real question. That's what we need to get honest about. Romans 6, 6 says this. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we no longer, um, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Right? We used to, but, but uh, th- something has happened so that we're no longer th- these slaves to sin. Now, in, in Romans 6, 18, having been set free from sin, that, that old identity, we become slaves of Christ Jesus, slaves of righteousness. <clears throat> it would be a mistake to view humanity as free, fine, and unencumbered creatures who who give up their, their freedom and their dignity and their joy to then somehow transition into becoming slaves of Jesus. As if we were just kind of crushing it on our own. Everything was perfect. Everything was was good. And then Jesus just comes in like a wrecking ball to, to ruin our party and take our toys and, and destroy all things that are good for us. As if our station was good without him, but then he runs in and ruins our station as, as, as he comes in. This is... This is just not reality. See, the biblical narrative is that we were dead in our sin, unable to get out of it. Since the fall in Genesis 3, the curse of sin has ruled over creation and mankind. God's good creation had become twisted up, and they begin to try and find their meaning on their own without him. And all of that has led to is this cycle of emptiness and pain. When creation tries to find meaning and joy and purpose and, and, and get the grounding outside of God, there's an endless cycle of pain that comes with that. Hear this. The more we've tried to find meaning without God, the more we lose ourselves. The more we try and find it without him, the more we lose ourselves. The harder we try to find ourselves outside of God, the worse things get. We have no hope of escape, no way to be reconciled to God, our creator, because of our sin. No way to have our humanity restored in the way that it was created to be. And this is why the Bible calls us slaves of of sin. That is before Jesus. This teaches us that sin isn't just a list of okay things to do and, and off limits things to do. Sin is whenever humanity looks to things outside of God to find meaning. Sin is when we reject the ways of God to try and do better alone. But this never really works. Why? Because we're made in the Imago Dei, the image of God. So it is only God that will make us whole. It is only through him and in his image that we will be put back together. And without God stepping into our story, we are slaves to this cycle of futility. Slaves to try one thing after another thing after another after another to to, to try and fix ourselves and find joy in. But Christ has come to set us free from that suffocating cycle of trying to find meaning and joy outside of him. There's a quote by R.C. Sproul that I love. When Christ sets us free from slavery to flesh, he calls us to the royal liberty of slavery 
to him. I love that quote because it's easy to think or maybe accidentally live like Jesus came to give us a great life that we then get to live out on our own without him. As if Jesus is just kind of a genie in the bottle that gives us some gifts uh, and he, he makes all of our wishes and our dreams come true. But our wishes coming true were never our real problem though. Sin was. Separation from God was. Being under the wrath of a holy God was. The only thing that fixes these things are the liberty that comes when we are slaves to Jesus. The freedom that comes from connection with and restoration from him. Nothing else will do. Nothing else will put us back together. Nothing else gives us back our humanity but Jesus. Not life without him, but slavery to him, our king. Everything hinges on Christ. Nothing good comes without him. Notice the way that Paul lines out verses 1 through 7 in the text. He, he does it by, by addressing all things and still pointing that all of this stuff comes from Jesus, connecting everything to him. He says, I'm a slave to Jesus, set apart by the gospel, which is the good news that God has through Jesus promised beforehand concerning God's son, which is Jesus. Then it says the son of God. That's Jesus. Then it says his resurrection. Who's it's Jesus's resurrection. It says our Lord. That's Jesus whom we've received grace from. That's also Jesus for the sake of his name. Whose name? For Jesus's name. We are called to belong to, it says, Jesus. Grace and peace are delivered to humanity through God and Jesus. Freedom comes from Jesus, faith in him, sacrifice er, from his sacrifice for our brokenness, from living out of faith in what he's done through confessing him. And that doesn't mean that we just kind of give this one-time prayer that's repeated after somebody else. Through a regular confession in word and deed through uh, or to the world about him. This, this freedom comes through following Jesus through submitting to Jesus, through trusting him, through obeying him, through connecting with him, through searching the word for him, through singing about him, through worshiping to him, through praying through him, through meditating on him, through silence before him and surrender to him. This is Paul's opening declaration in slavery to Jesus. We are free because that is where we find life and joy and hope and peace. You think you will find freedom in yourself, but that's never actually really worked. It is only in Christ that you will find it. Now, while our minds probably lean to the negative connotations of slavery, let's lean into seeing what the blessings of slavery to Christ actually are. We all, on some level, struggle with insecurity and self-worth. Right? We, we, we all do. And life is almost geared this way on us. We're trained from a really young age to, to pass classes, to get into colleges, to maybe earn degrees or nail job interviews. Maybe we're, we're taught to, to get someone to marry us, to get a good job, to become successful, to make a team, conquer a goal, to be considered bright, attractive, fit, a, a leader, to be thought of as a doer or, or somebody in the world. Because of this, knowingly, or unknowingly, we do an awful lot in our lives to curate a sense of self-worth, to make people think that we are something. Or even more painfully, we do an awful lot of things to try and convince our own condemning hearts that we're special, that we're worth something, that we have some sort of value. Now this pursuit, it can be pursued in a myriad of ways from a straight-on approach. 
uh, where we try and, and achieve what is considered valuable in our context. Maybe it's to try and get the jobs or the education or the wealth or the notoriety or the image or the reputation. And through getting those things, you kind of set your self-worth. For others, they do it in, in an indirect way. You pursue this type of worth through experiences through trips and adventures and hobbies and Instagram moments and Pinterest type pictures. You do all those things. And as long as those are happening, those kind of set your value. But here's the problem, whether you go about it in a, in a direct or an indirect way, when you try and set your worth through all of those things, it's a slavery of its own that masters us. And it is suffocating because the cycle never ends and it always needs to be fed. If you are finding your worth through what other people think of you or through getting things that the world thinks are valuable or through getting experiences that you think life worth living, that always needs to be fed day after day after day after day. And what's kind of horrific about this type of earned self-worth is in an instant it can collapse and all that you've built up in years before can all be taken away from you. One phone call of bad news can change everything. A health diagnosis, getting laid off, divorce, conflict with someone that you, you care about, a, a post about you online that you don't like, a text message that you didn't appreciate, your child getting in trouble and causing some issues, or, or maybe even a glance from, from someone that, uh, an off glance from someone that you kind of look up to. See, when we live in a system we're trying to set our own worth, it does not take a very strong gust to send us down to our knees. It doesn't take something just insane to, to wipe out all of that, that, that felt value that we have built up through all the other things that we have done. Now, what sets worth in the world? Well, that's simply what someone will pay for something else, right? That's how basketball cards can sell for $100,000. Think about that. It's cardstock that ink colors a picture of a boy with a ball, and, and that can be worth $100,000. Why? Because somebody will pay it. And since someone will pay that for it, that sets its value. Well, that's how a seat can cost $10,000 to an event, because someone will pay it. It's how a phone that you keep for two years can cost you well over $1,000, even if you justify it by, oh, I pay for that thing in installments. See, assigned value and worth are set by the price paid for something. So how much would you pay for something that you really loved, cared about, or really, really wanted? How much would you pay? 100 bucks? Would you pay 1,000? 10,000, 100,000? Maybe you got them deep pockets, right? Can you throw a million at it? I can't, but maybe you'd pay that amount. How about your blood? Would you pay that like all of your blood? Would you give it all for something that you cared about? 1 Corinthians 7, 19 through 20. You are not your own. This is to believers. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Acts 20, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his blood. Right? He paid with his blood. To be a slave of Christ is to be owned by him through a purchase with his blood. This is what it means. 
This is a part of the gospel. God has sent Jesus into our story to redeem us, to buy us back from the debt that our sin held over us. And that debt was really high and that price was not cheap. We'll learn more about this through the book of Romans and later, so we can't dive too deep into it now. But God promised long, long ago that sin leads to death. The innocent blood has to be paid in order to, to, to cover and pay for sin. Nothing gets forgotten. Right, nothing, no type of sin just gets to just to evaporate and go away. Blood has to be spilled. So this means that sin isn't a trivial deal; it's a deadly one. So Jesus came. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Live the innocent life that we have not, and died in our place, shedding His blood to the point of death to bring us redemption. To make us slaves of Christ required a cost of Jesus' blood and his innocent life. That's a high cost. Now, I don't want to try and turn this into some sort of self-help message that kind of inflates your, your ego or something like that. But it cannot be missed that Jesus, for those who belong to him, paid a cost that is beyond measure. Right? This speaks into your worth. This speaks into your value. If you are his slave, if you are his, to be a slave of Christ, bought by him, owned by him, and kept by him means that you no longer need to gauge your worth by the world's standards or what people in the world think of you anymore. Hear this. You don't even get to gauge your worth by your own standards anymore. Your condemning heart no longer gets to set your value and it no longer gets to devalue you because Christ has set your value by the price that he paid for you on his own, which was what was his blood and which is a really, really a high price to be paid. Don't write this off. Don't miss what this means if you really accept it. It means... You get to have peace when your head hits the pillow when life is good and when it's not going so well, when circumstances are absolutely awful. Whether you're crushing your pursuits or literally falling on your face in every single one that you try, you get to have peace. Why? Because your value has been set and it won't change because of Jesus. Right? This is true freedom. Resting in Jesus' finished work. See, Christians who really believe that they are slaves of Christ should be the bravest people in the world because they can go try and start businesses or do ventures or, or do amazing things out in the world and they can swing as hard as they possibly want and whether they make a connection and do something great or, or, or they whiff and, and, and land on their tail, it doesn't matter because their worth does not change. We should be brave because we know that our value is set in Christ. So go, believer. Try. Do. And and know that your value's been set. That also speaks into ownership. Do you have a habit of leaving expensive things behind? And I'm not talking like that one time that you decided to buy a pair of Ray-Bans and left them behind. No, like, do you have a habit of leaving expensive things behind on purpose? Would you walk away from your most expensive or cherished item on purpose? Uh, I went uh, to go shoot... Um, a compound bow with with Harrison and, and my son Judah on Christmas Eve uh, earlier in the day. It was beautiful out that day, if you remember. And my son Judah on that day was running around with my dad's really expensive rangefinder. 
Right, and so he's just going to random places and looking at the target and be like, it's 60 yards, it's 70, oh my gosh, it's 100 yards. So he's just running around. And at some point while he's running around, uh, the battery cap of that rangefinder came loose and, and it was lost. Thus rendering this really expensive rangefinder useless. So I had a choice at that moment. Do I look for the battery cap or do I walk away? Well, we looked for that thing forever. We even had Harrison's wife, Alex, bring us a metal detector and we're like taking that thing over piles of leaves and gravel and going back and forth for quite a long time trying to look for it. Why? Because we don't leave expensive things behind. We don't do that. Hear me, when the, when the enemy whispers into your ear that God doesn't love you and he's left you, when you worry if Jesus still cares for you or, and whether he has walked away, when your faults start adding up to the point that you think that Jesus has just given up on you and is no longer anywhere near you, we get to remember that he paid for us with his blood already. We were not cheap. We are cherished. We are loved. We are sealed. And he will never leave us ever. There was a high price paid. And he won't walk away from that. See, we bristle at the idea of ownership because we all want to be unique and, and we like the idea of independence and, and autonomy and self-sufficiency. Uh, but, but tell me honestly, how great is your autonomy when it leaves you alone? How good is it then? How good is it when it, when it, when it takes from you or separates you from the love of God? with the security of his promise, when it does nothing to speak into your value or your worth. So to be a slave of Christ is not to have your worth uh, in a, to be a slave of Christ is to have your worth in eternal security set in Christ. Those are the implications and the benefits of being a slave of Christ. But we cannot talk about the benefits without also talking about the demands, the demands. To be a slave of Christ, you can't clock out and go do your own thing. You can't follow Jesus on Sunday and then yourself the rest of the week. You don't get to segregate or segment your life like that. You can't give Jesus a couple routines while you ignore him the rest of the time. The following part of that R.C. Sproul quote that I read before about freedom coming through slavery to Jesus is this. That is why we call him master. We acknowledge that it is from him that we get our marching orders. He is the Lord of our lives. We are not our own. We are not autonomous or independent. Unless people understand their relationship to Christ in these terms, they remain unconverted. This will be a part of the challenging aspect of Romans as we move forward for many. In verse 1, Paul says, I am a slave of Christ for the gospel of God. Part of what he's relaying is that Christ and the word of God are our leaders. We are not our own. So this means that we do not get to, because we're not our own, we do not get to define life on our own terms. We don't get to define right and wrong by our thoughts or our feelings or our perceived view of things. Uh, we don't get to define sexuality for ourselves. We don't get to define money or, or tithe in our own way, or this is kind of how I feel about it. And we don't decide uh, that, that, that we don't get to decide that mission isn't actually needed from believers or that compassion isn't important. And we don't get to decide that once every four to six week attendance of church cons is considered being a part of the body. We don't get to do those things because we're not our own. 
To have a master in Jesus is to submit to him, even when you don't understand it. If you hear that and think, man, that sounds a whole lot like law and legalism, the submitting even when you don't like it. That doesn't sound like grace, and that doesn't sound like love, and that doesn't sound like kindness. Let me frame it up this way. If slavery to Christ is where freedom is found, if that is where we access true and deep peace and joy and love and hope, my point isn't necessarily behave or else. It's to teach us that living like a servant, uh, one who is kind of part-time under Christ, while part-time on their own, will not let you walk in the full experience of being a slave of Christ who is all his all the time. See, if you're walking more like a servant, part-time with Jesus and part-time solo, if your life is segmented, like you are, you, like you are your own, defining what, what you get to do on your own terms, then that means that you probably feel like God is a distant and harsh boss, not a loving owner who is, who is paid just a great price to bring you home because he loves you. Why? Because you're living like a servant, so you do not feel the, the reality of being a slave. And you probably are still always battling with self-worth inside because you aren't living like Jesus paid in blood for you and that he'll never let you go. See, the, the hope in saying that, hey, there, there's some things that come with being a, a slave of Christ, and part of that is not being your own, and that he is the leader, isn't to, to make you cry foul and legalism. It's just to offer you more depth. To be a slave who's fully submitted to Jesus and says, I am not my own and you are my master, is where you will find the full depth of the peace that God has for you. And outside of that, you will not live in that. You don't have to get upset. Just understand the choice is yours. Do you want to live like a servant or a slave? We're going to land the, the plane with just a couple questions to process. First, are you a slave to sin or to Christ? Just entry question. Which one is it? Romans would tell us that everyone is a slave, one or the other. So which one is it? If you've never submitted to, to Jesus, hear this beautiful reality. Jesus doesn't demand that, that you be perfect to get his love and mercy. You don't have to clean yourself up or figure it all out. Jesus just wants your heart for you to surrender to him and to follow him. And there are people uh, in church, Garrett and Blake and some of the other people around who would love to pray for you uh, even after the service, to, the service today, if you would like. But if that's you, if you've never surrendered to Christ, as we kind of sing and close in in service today, man, why don't you just pray out to Jesus yourself? Yes, I am a sinner in, in need of you. I want to follow you and I want to believe in you. Help me. And that's enough to, to, to start following Christ. See, Christ has come for you. Don't walk away from finding him today. Are you a slave to sin or of Christ? Man, I pray that somebody would submit and come to know him. Second, has your life been marked as of late more by servanthood or slavery? If you've been more in this part-time servant role out there, kind of on your own, doing your own thing, it's a perfect time to convince that or to confess that to God. And just remember, he already knows and walk back towards the identity that he paid in blood for you. So you don't have to beat yourself up. You don't have to weigh all the options. Just repent and come home. Walk back into the beauty of understanding what Jesus has done. The, your home is not one of a servant. It's, it's the one of a slave. Come, just, just come back. 
Don't wrestle with it in, in your mind. Just repent. And third, if you've been growing in your faith and following Jesus, if you've been trusting and living like you were uh, his uh, more than ever before, then just worship in gratitude through that today. Jesus died to bring you to the place you're in right now. Let, let that sink in. He has brought you to where you are. This is progress. This is a beautiful thing. You are growing in godliness. Don't puff up your chest and look what I've done. Instead, take the win. Thank you, Lord. You're not only faithful to save me, but you've been guiding me and you've, you've been leading the way that I've been walking. Man, thank you for that. See, in those three responses, we find three responses of faith. And that means there's nobody who does not have a, a faith way forward in response today. See, we can come to Christ for the first time. We can repent and return to him once again. Or in thankfulness, we can worship the God who is working and doing a good work in us. No matter who you are, you are able to respond in faith in some way today. The hope is that nobody walks away without responding. And know that no matter what response you are in today, the hope is that you are flooded with the reality of how much God loves you. And then that you understand he's proven that love through sending Jesus and Jesus dying for you. To be his slave is not condemnation. It's the greatest gift that you will ever get. Church, as we stop today, won't you respond? Won't you respond in some way? If you need to repent, repent. If you need to come for the first time, come. If you need to worship in gratitude, worship in gratitude. I, I hope that you don't hear this and assume that you've responded by identifying where you are without actually responding in prayer today. Respond to the Lord. He is good. I'm excited to go through the rest of this book with you. We'll have communion available. It's at the, the tables in the front at any time in worship you are able to take uh, as long as your faith is in Jesus. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26 says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, uh, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, as you worship and you respond in faith, at some point I pray that you will take and understand that the body and blood of Jesus was shed for you. His body was broken for you. His blood was shed to set your value, to, to, to make you his own, and to seal you into his family forever. Would you come and would you take at some point today and be uh, really built up in joy? Your God loves you and he cares for you and he's paid for you and he'll never let you go. I pray that you see that and submit to that in whatever way you need to today. Let me pray for you. God, I thank you for your word. I pray that you be with us through this series, and we just ask that you would work. Holy Spirit, draw near to your people. May your word not return void. I pray that you cut to the deep recesses of our soul, and whether it is through, through causing us to be joyous and, and give you thanks or causing us to repent or come in the first time for the first time to you, I pray, Lord, that you would do a work in us. Come and draw near, God. Be glorified today. We thank you for your kindness and your patience and your mercy with us. Be glorified through our song and through what we do. We love you, God. Amen.
Church, I love you guys. I cannot wait to see you again. I know this is a different way to do things today, um, but I'm glad that you are able to still get together as embodied souls and worship together. Have a great day. I'll worship the Lord. I'll see you soon.